No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots stock show, which will try to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia. Tonight we have a very special guest, uh, Logan Phillips. Um, We're happy to have him on the show to talk about polling and see what's up, because the polls seem to be wrong lately. Logan, welcome to the show. Hey, Senator, thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it, it's great to have you. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, uh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> I'm starting a little late here. Anyway, we want to talk about polling tonight. You know, it seems to me that uh, I've said this over and over again on the, on the air, the one good thing about uh, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 for me is that my family no longer asked for my political opinion because I said I said there's no way this guy can get elected. Look, look, there's no way this guy can get elected. And then I said, just look at the polls. He's not going to get elected. So let's start there at the very beginning. What happened in 2016? Do you know? Oh, well, that's so a great wrong? question. Um I'm lucky that I didn't start doing election forecasting until 2020. So uh, (laughs) I don't have anyone that can test me on my record on that. Uh, But I think what happened there is a combination of two things. One, I think we got lulled into a little bit of complacency because we had these forecasts and polling that were just so spot on in back-to-back-to-back cycles um, that it really began to be something we really believe in. And then second... Um, while the luck ran out, um, people started to respond to polls a lot less, which made pollsters' jobs a lot harder. And we had um, a group turn out in a rate we haven't seen before, of uh, white, non-college-educated voters. And that was hard for people to predict. And, you know, I think these are the types of problems we're a lot more at risk now for, um, not only because people are responding to their phones less, and we can get more into that in the future, but also because our politics is so polarized now, along racial lines, along gender lines, around age, education, and religion. And so if you're not doing a good enough job of getting a representative sample of every group and the people that you're talking to, the chance for a huge miss like 2016 and 2020 is just so much higher. Well, isn't that the critical thing? I I remember that from, uh, you know, graduate school where we did, uh, we, I did a project with the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan and, and everything on polling, the accuracy of all of it revolves around having a random sample, does it not? And being able to get that random sample. Is it harder to get a random sample now? Oh my gosh, yes. It's much, much, much harder. And the reason is, you know, I think if people just think about it in your own lives, 
Um, if you get a poll from a stranger and you answer it, even if you're weird like me and you actually like talking to random people on the phone, um, you start to get kind of pushed out of the practice because almost every time that happens, it's a spam call. Uh, and so now I don't even answer it myself. So, you know, I, I think Nate Cohen from the New York Times, who does a lot of polls, said that even back in 2016, 1.6% of the dials that his team would do would get answered and they'd complete the survey. Now it's down to 0.4%. Wow. Well, and that's just from 2016. Well, what about that, about the people that you do, in fact, reach? You know, the classic example I remember from, from again, from college was uh, the election of Harry Truman, his re-election, where the Chicago Tribune, Tribune uh, printed the headline, uh, Dewey Defeats Truman. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, considered the classic example of polling era. And I think they decided one of the reasons for that is because they, they did phone polls. And in those days, uh, you were much more likely to have a phone if you were a Republican than you were if you were a Democrat. So how, how does that affect you now as you go through, you know, like trying to find people on their cell phones and, and, and things like that? Does it, I mean, if you're only reaching young people on uh, their cell phones and, and are, are you going to always find out that Bernie Sanders is the, is the winner or, or AOC or you, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, how do you get around that problem of actually reaching people? Do you know how they do that? Yeah, there's a lot more online polls now, and that's really important for reaching young voters or people in general as the response rate goes down for phones. Um, and it helps you figure out, like, okay, in our polls, we're not getting enough of this demographic. Well, we know these demographics go to this type of website a lot, so we can try to really target them. Um, and, you know, if you're not, you know, you ask people in the polls, like, you know, what's your race, what's your gender, education, et cetera. And so that will give you an idea if you're not getting a good enough response rate with certain groups. Well, you know, there are people that call polling political sophistry, you know, that it's just a justification. We see what we want to see. And, and you know, uh, uh, and, and then we put that out. It's fact. Is that is that really the you know, did what do you think about that? I guess is my question. Do, do you think there is some sophistry there that that certainly that was the case with the, the Dewey? Uh, defeats Truman headline because the Chicago Tribune hated Harry Truman. I mean, do we do we find what we look to find in polls often? Yeah, uh, definitely 100%. And sometimes it's not even what people want to see. It's what's in their financial interests. You know, newspapers got hit very hard for the repeat mistakes of 2016 and 2020, which even though people abide in winning, I mean, you know, we had polls in Wisconsin on average showing him winning by eight. That was probably the biggest polling miss. I've ever seen um, and the decades that I've looked at work when I was building my election forecast models. So to me, the key is to build polling averages. Um, so when you're looking at all the polls and you're weighing them by how strong the pollsters have been in the past, you're sometimes like this cycle in particular, aggressively correcting for partisan pollsters bias, you get a much better overall number. And that's the type of thing that I try to do at race to the uh, wh.com. Um, and, you know, when we did that this time around in particular, I think our Senate polling average got every race right but one, 
even without doing any forecasting work. Um, and that was the Nevada race, which is the one place where Democrats tend to get pretty consistently underrated. Um, and for the governor race, it got all but two races right. Wisconsin, I think it had uh, Tony Evers losing by 0.1%. So that was basically a tie. Um, so we did see it get a lot better this time around. Um, pollsters seem to work really hard at correcting some of their mistakes from 2020. Uh, you know, it did this time underestimate Democrats. But I think the narrative about the polls this time said that Democrats were in deep trouble because they had lost a lot of ground in the last month. But in my opinion, at least going into Election Day, they still were the favorites in the Senate. Well, the pollsters tend to remind us that polls are just snapshots of a particular moment in time and they're not predictors of the future. So if that's the case, first of all, do you believe that? And if that's the case, really, what good are they to us? If we can't, if we can't use them to predict the future, if we can only say that six days before the election, these people thought this way, but we have, we're not sure what they're going to feel like on election day. Uh, how useful are polls to us? I think they're useful for two reasons that are directly built on each other. One, um, you know, I'm not trying to overpromote myself, but just to explain how my answer gets here. So one of the other things with race the way else we do is we predict the results of elections and polls are a big part of it, but they're not the only thing. You got to take it into the context of how did the senator run six years ago, the last time they ran? How does the state tend to vote? Who's raising more money? And when you put that in together, you can often predict, you know, 95, 96 percent of the time is going to win. And the second reason, which is the why does that matter other than just that for people like you and me that really care about the result and want to know what's going on? Well, let's say you're an activist. If you like to volunteer, or you like to donate to races, right? We, don't, we all have only so much time and everyone works hard for their money. You want to make sure it's going to the places where it's going to make the biggest difference. And looking at election forecasts and also looking at the polling gives you a good read of, okay, this poll could be wrong. This forecast could be wrong. It is always good to have a healthy dose of skepticism, but chances are far higher that if I donate to Raphael Warnock's campaign, it's going to make more of a difference um, than if I donate to Senator Alex Padilla in California, who has a 99.9% chance where Warnock maybe has a a 55% chance going back into um, this past election day. So polls affect our behavior. Is that dangerous for our democracy? I mean, should we, should we be, basing our politics on who's got the best chance as opposed to who's got the best platform. I mean, doesn't polling, there's this thing called the bandwagon effect in, in politics. Of course, of course, political scientists also have a thing called the underdog effect and they both work uh, in opposite directions. But the bandwagon effect says basically people like to go with a winner. So if a poll says I'm ahead, they're more likely to vote for me. Uh, you think that's true? You think we're changing polls actually change our voting behavior or, uh, uh, you know, just like we're not allowed to tell what the election results in California are in a presidential election. I mean, I'm sorry, on the East coast, what the election results have been, uh, because it might affect, um, uh, voting on the West coast because there's a three-hour time difference, uh, is, 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 are they affecting our behavior in that way? And should they? Uh, I don't want to vote. I'm not going to bother to go out and vote for Joe Biden because I already saw he lost in 
uh, a couple of key states. I mean, is, is do you think that's a, a healthy thing for democracy? I am skeptical, at least specifically for today, when there's such a huge separation in the parties and people are so emotionally invested, that that would have an effect in specifically a general election. I think it has an enormous effect in primaries, and I think it's good and bad. Um, it means that some candidates, maybe like Cory Booker last cycle, that people constantly said they really liked, um, but yeah. he was never able really to build up support. Part of that was yeah. like people were saying, oh, well, if he starts pulling better, uh, he might be my guy. I heard that so many times. And so I think the upside of that is, you know, the way, especially on the Democratic side in these primaries on the presidential level, at least, and I realize, you know, there's a lot of things beyond just the presidential primaries, but it's such a weird system where if candidates don't start really mobilizing support early on, it's snowballing, you're heading to a contested convention. And there's something to be said if they're going to donate volunteer, or even vote for someone that you want to make sure your vote goes to one of the people that can win. So perhaps it's less of a, I want to look, I want to be part of the crowd thing. Maybe that's part of it. But I think more than that, it's that people want to be strategic because they value their vote. And so they want to give it to the person that's a strong contender uh, that can actually win. Well, and, and what you just said, actually, I think had a dramatic impact in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. I remember as a political insider uh, inside the party, I'm a super delegate and have been for the last several conventions. Every everybody thought Hillary Clinton had it wrapped up. They they you know the when the during the primary season, everybody talked like from from day one like she was the presumptive candidate and and really that was some of the genius of neil axelrod who was obama's campaign manager that he uh i'm sorry i'm not talking about 2016 i'm obviously i'm talking about 2008 but uh he noticed that you know that that they clinton wasn't addressing the caucuses and he went out uh to the to the iowa caucuses and he and the other caucuses and he won the caucus states and that started the momentum that you were just talking about. So I think it had a dramatic effect on 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 Obama's uh, nomination and really caught uh, Clinton by surprise. And actually, that may have led to 2016, where, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that Bernie Sanders and some of the other candidates were blocked out. And and I think in part of the of the process inside the Democratic Party, uh, in part that was because the Clinton people weren't going to get fooled again. You know, once <laughs> yes, right. They they said no, we're not going to let it happen again. We're not going to let somebody creep in from the side like Obama did. And I really think they felt that that there was that animosity between the two of them. So uh, I I think that had a a, a really uh, a dramatic effect. So if I understand what you're saying, you think that the more polls you have, the better off you are because that helps you average polls and come up with a, a consensus. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, look, I am hardly a random person in society in this regard. It is in my interest to do my job well. Uh, whenever that's a public good or not is, is worthy of debate. Um, but I would still say that, you know, no matter how much polls we have, um, people are really hard to predict. Polling is harder than it used to be. 
And I think one of the biggest lessons we, we from 2016 is to come into every election when you start to feel confident and just go through in your head, what if I'm wrong and what are the reasons I'm going to be wrong? And if you do that, you start to see some. I think one of them in 2016, which is really easy to say in retrospect, right, is to just point to the fact that it, the only thing harder than being an incumbent president is to win three terms in a row. The only time it's happened since Truman uh, was, you know, the Reagan to the Bush administration. Um, it, you know, people really like change. Uh, people often emphasize, well, you know, Clinton lost to the person with the lowest approval rating going into the election of any, any president. Um, how could she have messed up the campaign? I think the way to look about it is that Donald Trump went up against the person who, not trying to disrespect Clinton, who I do respect, but um, had the second lowest approval rating um, after eight years of a Democratic president, and he barely won. Um, arguably, she overperformed if you didn't know anything about the polling, uh, because he, that's an election Republicans normally would win. Well, yeah, and, and isn't that the case right now? I mean, the pundits, and how much do you think that affected the polling? The the fact that uh, all the indicators, all the historical indicators were against the Democrats, right? The economy, inflation is high. Gas prices are high. Uh, the incumbent is usually, the incumbent party is usually, um, you know, uh, they're, they're that they usually get the blame for that. Uh, and there's uh, a historic change uh, in the House of Representatives, usually uh, against whatever the incumbent party is. But no red wave, which was the thing that was predicted uh, by many, many pollsters, that never materialized. So, it, you know, is that what happened? Are, are we... Uh, did we ex did we expect to to see uh, uh, the uh, the Republican landslide more based on the historical facts than on the polling itself? And and did that affect the polling? Do you think? Yeah, I think the polling was pretty good this year. It, it did lean a little bit to the left, um, but I think it was more the analysis on, of that led us astray. Um, because so, so my view is all that stuff should be really relevant when we're making a prediction in January of 2022 or, or January of 2021. By the time we got to election day, we had so many other indicators that to me are a lot more reliable um, because we knew that voters were really fired up on the D side more than usual. Um, and it was clear from the fundraising and, and from the polling. Um, we knew that a lot of independent voters were unsettled and, you know, probably mostly by Roe, but a lot of other things related to Democratic issues. Uh, and we can even see it from the way, you know, Republicans and Democrats are spending their money. You know, Mitch McConnell doesn't like to waste, uh, doesn't like to waste the money that he raises. And he was spending a lot of time spending money in Ohio, way more than he was willing to spend in Arizona. And that kind of told us something too, right? So I think the problem was, in, in 2016 and 2020, people just got it so wrong, overestimating Republicans. They didn't really want to get it wrong again. Um, they were learning from the historic mistakes or the historic trends as well, but they just overlearned the lesson, which to me is natural um, human nature. If you're going to, like, if you want to be a little smarter than the conventionalism, I think the one of the things to look out for is what are people overhyping on and agreeing on because of some recent event? And nine out of 10 times, in my view, they're going to be overstating. Um, how much that should matter going forward. 
And how do you judge the salience of an issue? That seemed to me to be a big problem with the polls this time. Is when I looked at the polls, and I, and I don't study polling. I don't. I don't. I don't look at it the way you do. I'm just telling you what I've seen on CNN and you know CNNBC and Meet the Press. Uh, the polls seem to indicate that even though abortion, for example, was a big issue, it was not one of the top issues. The top issues seem to come out in every poll. The top issues seem to come out uh, with the economy as the number one issue. Jobs, uh, uh, the inflation, the cost of gas, uh, these all ranked above abortion. But uh, if the Democrats had a high uh, turnout based on a woman's right to choose, uh, how do you how do you pr- how do you predict that? How do how do you know the value of that? For example, when you call me on the phone and you say, "Hey, Mike, what, what's your most important issue?" and I say, uh, "The economy," and um, uh, I, you know, and gas prices and so on and so forth. And then I get down to a woman's right to choose. How, how, how do you decide how important that is to me? Because if I'm motivated to go out on the basis and vote on a woman's right to choose, but it's not my most important issue. And, and of course, the big, I'm sorry to make this question so convoluted, but the big uh, um, issue right now uh, that people are talking about is democracy. Right. The president said that Americans stood up to save our democracy. That was what was important to him. But that's not what the polls reflected. So I would say I would I'd answer this in two parts. I would say in the first part, how do we know that Roe in particular had salience? And I think we can look at how the polls were getting worse and worse for Democrats over time. I honestly think we were on track for a below average performance in a midterm for Republicans, maybe like an R plus four, R plus five, um, popular vote. But, you know, it's still, it's just dramatically shifted into a real horse race after that. Um, and the timing was just too much of a coincidence because nothing else at that point was a major shift. Um, I think we do know, I'm going to get to the part in the middle in a sec, but to get to the last point you made about the, do we know democracy mattered? I think we really know it does. Because the whole MAGA Republicans thesis that Biden had had advocated for that not all Republicans, there's a certain kind of Republicans that are anti-democracy and are very dangerous. That's how the voters by and large interpreted it across the country. Uh, We saw just about every single Republican that had argued whenever they were saying it or not, the notion that, hey, it's not the voters that get to decide, it's me that gets to decide because the whole process is rigged, so we're going to change it so we can shift the outcome in the way we want. You know, the Carrie Lakes of the world, the Doug Mastrianos of the world, they just got, you know, their butts handed to them. They lost just about every single competitive race in the country um, and often lost by huge margins. I think Mastriano lost by 17 um, you know, Wisconsin, one of the few places we had a polling miss, and this time it was in favor of them, so it wasn't that dramatic. Uh, the gov- Republican governor candidate, Tim Meckel, said that this, you know, when he wins, there will be, you know, be, we won't be, Republicans will be winning every election from here on forward, and ironically, he didn't. Um, that just really turned off voters, so I think the overperformance shows that. Now, in terms of why we didn't see voters always say abortion was their top issue, um, I think abortion and democracy, and to some degree, uh, gun control, 
and climate all tied together in the same sense that for a lot of voters that maybe are recent Democrat voters that voted for Biden in 2020 used to vote for Republicans like the Romney Biden voters, they got kind of turned off. And I think like normally these elections are referendums. But this became a choice election because they got the idea that maybe Republicans can't be trusted with this power, or at least some Republicans can't. And all of this was reinforcing. It's, it's almost like this election became about freedom. And that's not just a woman's right to choose or the right to vote, but it's, do we want to elect people that are going to tell us how we should live our life and try to run things the way they think they should? Mark Kelly said this about Blake Masters about all the time, about this guy is one of those people that thinks he always knows he's right and should be telling you what to do, right? There's just this sense. And America, to me, like every country has something that defines it. To me, for America, it's liberty and the ability to determine your own future, um, to live the life you, the way you wanted to, not to be infringed upon by the government or anything else. And that doesn't just help Republicans. In my view, in this election, that is single-handedly tied across all these different threads what made Democrats do so well. And the Republicans that were not perceived to be um, making people nervous about those types of things did, did more than fine. Sometimes they did fantastic, like Mike DeWine in, in Ohio, although he did have a raw restrictions on abortion. Well, I mean, I would I would point out that hindsight is twenty twenty, and 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 I think that this is a, a problem sometimes with pollsters is that that at the end when we get to the when we get to the you know final result, uh, they have a way to interpret what they found out as being, as being correct, whether it was correct or not. But let me ask you the uh, the the most of uh, what I think is the most important question, which is the danger of polling. In that, does polling change the message? Did Biden come out with the democracy message because uh, of what Democrats were seeing in the polls? And and is that, uh, uh, you know, does that affect our democracy? That uh, in, instead of coming up with a platform that I believe in, I'm going to come up with a platform that you believe in. And and well, I, uh, yeah. we're, we're very, very often politicians are criticized for this. Right. Is that, you know, they that they they say what you want to hear rather than than what they really feel. What do you think about that? I think in the best version and, you know, as you know, I'm more experienced than me. Uh, there are some poli- the politicians that are there for the right reasons, and that's obviously not all. If they're using polling and find it valuable, they'd look for the message that. Um, they that hits checks both boxes of something that they deeply believe in connects in their values that also connects with the American people. And so there's an issue that they, maybe they have done amazing work on human trafficking and that's something they champion in their career, but it's not an issue that's connecting with voters. It doesn't mean they don't keep fighting uh, to reduce it, but they might talk about um, how we can solve homelessness instead, because that's also important to them and that connects with voters. If you're, if you're having a, which obviously happens a lot of the time, I'm not saying it doesn't, if you're having the type of campaign where it's all based off polls, that's not a good thing. I, I think though, like, this is an area where I disagreed with most of the analysts and pollsters for a while, but a lot of incredibly smart people were, and, and pollsters were saying, hey, the democracy issue is not rating very high. Why are these people talking about all the time? Which is kind of annoying because it's like, well, we just saw our democracy under attack. But I also think that they just were kind of thinking along the lines of, because it's not important today, it won't be important tomorrow. And I would say something Democrats should get a lot of credit for, including Biden, is to say 
this is a unique moment in history where if it's not registering as a high concern, we need to do everything in our power to change that um, because that's going to be what we need to do to protect the country. And so I think they talked about it all the time. You had the January 6th committees. Biden made it a focal point in his speeches. And some of this seems to be driven, at least from the articles that I've read, by his conversations with historians um, that convinced them this is the point to really hit upon. And that if you do it right, you might be able to move people. So to me, that was kind of a unique moment of leadership um, going against the polls to just mobilize people on what matters. And it seems to have really worked. First of all, let me tell you, that's a great answer. And you should run for public office because that, that was a re- that was a really good answer to that question. Uh, but let me let me ask you: Can you give me any insight about push polling? Now, push polling was a big issue in 2016, it seemed to me, in 2020. But we didn't really hear about it in 2022. Has it fallen out of fashion for some reason? Or are people still doing push polls? And for our audience who might not understand what a push poll is, uh, uh, a push poll uh, asks questions that are, are are designed to move people in a particular direction towards a particular candidate. Uh, do we see as much of that going on as we saw in, for example, in 2016 in local races? So when you say push polls, are you do you mean? that they're hoping the results of the polls will shift the way people cover or maybe vote? Are you saying that the poll, are you talking about polls themselves like Cheney ran or or the Bush ran against McCain in 2000? Right. Um, Exactly. The polls that that Bush ran against McCain were, you know, were, where I, I ask you uh, a double negative. So, so no matter how you answer, it makes the other candidate look bad. Yeah, if their goal is to mobilize the people they talk to in the polls, I think that just doesn't work anymore because the response rate, ironically, everything that makes polling so hard, the response rate is so low that, like, that's the worst way you could have to just shift people's minds is to pretend to be a pollster because someone's going to talk to you. <laughs> so that would have worked yeah. in 2000. I don't think it would have worked as much now. Um, in terms of, but I do think you see pollsters of an agenda for sure. Um, Trafalgar missed by seven and a half points to the right. Um, this time. It was really annoying, honestly, adding all these Republican pollsters to my average at the end, because I could tell they were probably making my forecast wrong. And I'm just fortunate enough that I adopted the practice of aggressively correcting for bias. Otherwise, I would have had um, Warnock on track to lose in the first round. Um, and I might have had Mark Kelly in a toss-up in Pennsylvania going red, too. Because um, that stuff can definitely lead you straight. I don't really understand what they get out of that, though. I don't really see why moving a polling average in the last few days or having some polls that are good for one candidate helps you. I get it when you do it two months out when you're trying to get more funding. Yeah, no, I think, you know, as I mentioned uh, earlier about the bandwagon effect, I think maybe that's their hope is that, you know, is that they can, they can drive more people to the polls if they come out with a, a, you know, a positive uh, or keep people away from the polls if they come out with a, with a negative. Um, so let me ask you, how about um, actors in the in in your business, people that pollsters? Uh, as I told you before the show started, I worked a couple of weeks for Harris Bowling Company, and when when I was uh, first starting in politics forty years ago, Harris polls were the polls. Those were the polls that everybody listened to. I don't even know if Harris is still around anymore, but we hear uh, places like Quinn. Quinnicky, I, I don't know why I can't say the name of this university, but Quinnicky APAC uh, University, 
uh, they're a new polling powerhouse, aren't they? They, uh, I, I never even heard of them before 2016. Now I see their polls every, uh, uh, everywhere. And, and, uh, uh, you know, their other, their clear politics and other polling companies, it seems like there's been a proliferation of different polling companies over the last uh, 20 years. Is that true? There are a lot more pollsters out there today? Yeah, there's definitely a lot more today than there was um, at least 18 years ago or 12 years ago. I think there might be less now than there were um, eight years ago because polling's gotten so much more expensive, or at least some of these ones might not make it necessarily. A lot less releasing public polls this time than uh, 2020. Um, but, you know, there's Quinnipiac is a good pollster. Um, Maris is someone I really trust, and they've had a fantastic year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you really do want to look at people's track records to judge them. But I, you know, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I think the key is to follow the average overall. Um, and also, you know, people always rely on our real clear politics because it's been an institution that's been there for a long time. I do think we now have better options um, because they don't weigh the polls and they don't correct for bias. And they also made a really, really big strategic error this time. I think they came into the cycle thinking, well, we just had two giant R polling misses. We're just going to assume that from the get-go. They were incredibly selective at the polls they decided to include or not include. And that meant that their model was overwhelmingly underestimating Democrats because instead of there being a giant R miss, there was a slight D miss. So that made them miss by like six points in a lot of these races. So to me, they're not really following a rigorous data model anymore the way that they used to. Has polling, has predicting from polls become harder because of the changes in voting behavior and the changes in laws like early voting, mail-in voting, uh, you know, same-day registration? Have these changed voting behavior in such a way that it makes it harder to predict what outcomes will be? Um, I'm not sure if it hurts polling, but it does mean that we have to be really cautious in terms of reading into the data of how people are voting and looking at the early voting numbers um, to predict what the total will be, because this is kind of a refrain of mine over the last two weeks before the election. Like, in 2018, um, we didn't have the Donald Trump thing about don't do early voting or don't do... vote by mail like right. in california they literally set it up to help arnold schwarzenegger win re-election um and now democrat republicans don't touch it in most states uh because they think it's a rigged process where democrats don't feel that way at all um but so, so that has thrown the numbers askew in terms of it's really hard to use that as a base point also because the rules are changing in a lot of states and then if we overuse 2020 well that was a, you know that was a weird election when everyone was worried about covid and to a much greater degree than they are now. And so they wouldn't be wanting to go to the polls in person. So, you know, no, almost no one voted at the same early um, vote-by-mail rates they did in 2020. And this is uh, why I assume that it's so important in polling to poll likely voters and to determine who likely voters are. You know, when I go out, uh, I used I was a direct political direct mail consultant. So when I wanted to mail into a particular area, we looked for likely voters. Those were the people we looked for uh, first. They were they were you know those are the people we wanted to persuade. So uh, 
we would look at voting records we could get from the Board of Elections. We couldn't see who you voted for, but we could see how you, you know, how many times you voted. So if you were somebody that voted in the last four primary elections, for example, we would consider you, uh, uh, you know, a potential likely voter. Is that still how we do it? Do we do it by looking at past voting for behavior or are there other predictors or do you ask people how likely they are to vote do you try to gauge that somehow yeah i mean that's that's a great point and i think the answer is different pollsters do it different ways um because you know you do definitely want to ask people um you might choose your voter base by targeting individuals from voter files um instead of just doing random sampling um and i think for campaigns there's a shift now too because there definitely are persuadable voters. Um, I think people exaggerate their death. I mean, we saw a lot of swing voting in this election. But turnout, is, there's a lot less of them than there used to be. Uh, most people are pretty dyed in the will Democrats or Republicans, especially in Senate races or federal races. And so, you know, you're probably more focused on the person that turned out in 2020 that is 18, was 18 then, is now 20. And you really don't know if they're going to vote again. Or maybe they voted you know, one of the last three midterms and it's a midterm. And so if you engage them, you might be able to get them out there when without that, there's under 50% chance. Uh, in, in reading about, you know, in, in reading some information about recent polling, I came across a thing that said that polls are subject to certain errors due to random variation. What's random variation? What do you do? You understand what they mean by that? Because that threw me. I didn't understand what that meant. Yeah, I think that's just a fancy way of saying they could be wrong because of things we're not expecting, and this isn't an exact science. So we can't tell you in which way we're, they're going to be wrong. We can just tell you that sometimes they're going to be wrong, and we're going to be wrong by about this much on average. Um, so have a healthy dose of skepticism to translate what, into English. And what about that? What about the fact that? You know, we're trained in this country, probably all over the world, as children to think of mathematics, anything that includes numbers as being a fact, you know, factual, right? Science is more more factual than 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 uh, uh, the other disciplines. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that we we rely more on polls because we think if we see a number, that makes it, uh, you know, more believable that, that we're more, we think, you know, if you use numbers, it, you sound more correct. Do you think that, that that's one of the things about polling that makes it uh, so important to people? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that there's something to be said. <laughs> like it's far from perfect to get at the heart of your of what you're saying, and I think like the real key is just remember healthy doses of skepticism. These numbers tell us where the race probably is, but like you know the random variance. It's like this could be in either direction. We can probably come up with a few reasons about why it could miss in each one. We don't know what's actually going to happen for sure, but this is along the lines of what we can expect. Um, now, in terms of the numbers being more valuable, like there is something to that in that it's not always going to be right, but you know, these days we mostly know people that think the same way that we do, right? There's lots of exceptions right. out there, but most for, for most Americans, the majority of people that live near them 
and the majority of their friends and often the majority of their family um, is going to vote similarly. And that's because, you know, along all these different groups that were polarized along, um, if you live around people that have similar levels of education or race, or you're, of course, going to live near people that live in similar regions just by the very nature of living, right? Um, they're going to think similarly. That's honestly a big part of why I started my election forecast. I was in um, New York City, and I could tell that the people I was around were not representative at all, and it was hurting my political compass, and I really wanted to know what was happening, and I just built my own thing to be able to figure out what, using some of the polling data, what was actually going on. Well, and that was my problem. That was my problem, is that, you know, and I had I had friends, and I just didn't believe them, who were lived in places like Arizona, who were saying to me, you don't you you don't understand. You live in a bubble there in Washington D.C., and of course, all the liberals that you associate with are not going to vote for Donald Trump, and everybody you talk to is not going to vote for Donald Trump. But you're out of touch because you're not out. You know, I'm in Arizona, and I can tell you, people don't feel the same way they do in Washington D.C., and that's been a problem for the Democratic Party. I think is that we've lost touch with, uh, we've lost touch with middle America in a lot of ways. Uh, do you think polling's had any, and should take any of the blame for that? Do you think that, you know, that, um, we see what we want to see in polls and that reinforces the way we believe? Yeah. I think if you are reading, it probably depends where you're getting your numbers from. If you're just looking at all the polls, I think it can be kind of, um, and an aesthetic for that almost that can prevent that problem. If you're looking at polls from like, let's say what MSNBC is going to be covering, they're going to be doing a lot more cheerleading polls um, about how this is good news because it makes, that's what the viewership would want to hear. And they don't want their viewers to turn out by just saying, Oh, it looks like we're heading towards disaster. Um, so to some degree, you know, the, the news organizations regard in, in the way that they have bias will have, will show the polls that are better or worse for their side. Um, but I think they can help show us that, Hey, this person that I think is great may not be doing so well. Look, my priors going into that Georgia Senate race were that Herschel Walker, who had, you know, frequently threatened to kill his wife over and over and over again, was going to lose by like five, six, seven percent. Uh, it was clear for me from the polling data that I was wrong about that. And I had to change. If I had no polling, I certainly would have expected it would have been a clean, easy win for Warnock in the first round. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Georgia. Um, you know, um, is there anything, has there been, have we been doing polling already uh, post-election on how people feel in Georgia? And I'm sure there'll be a gazillion polls done between now and the beginning of December. It's only a few weeks until the the, the next election. Um have we been doing polling, polling, and what does your polling show in Georgia? What, what, are, what is so, your analysis of that polling? So, so that's a great question. Um, the last few days have actually been really hard at work. I just launched my Georgia Senate forecast at race to the wh.com slash Georgia. So what I think going into this is that Warnock is favored, but it is not a slam dunk. I give him a 72% chance of winning the election with expecting, a, you know, about a two and a half point win, but it's very clear that Warnock can win this too. So we are dealing with incredibly limited polling because the only polls we have so far, unfortunately, are polls done before the election. Um, 
So those were kind of assuming the same voter base would turn out. Some of these people will not turn out, and the polls will help us get a better idea if those are Warnock or, or, or Walker supporters that are less likely to turn out in the second round. But the only two polls we have, um, when, you, when you put them in a polling average, have Warnock up by 0.2% over Walker, wow. um, 482 to 48. But I think we need a lot more polls to get a better idea of what's really going on. Yeah, and how do you calculate for things like there's been speculation that Republicans may not show out, show up as strongly because uh, they won the House of Representatives. So they may not think it's, you know, there's all this speculation, of course, going on. But that's one thing I've heard uh, more than once, that there are people saying, well, you know, Republicans may not show up in 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 uh, as great a number because they think they've already won. They've won the House of Representatives, and that's what's important. And they've lost the Senate, right? They understand the importance of control of the Senate. And regardless of the outcome of the race, they have lost the uh, they have lost the Senate, and they understand that. How do you how do you control for those kind of factors, and can you control for that in in, in polling? I don't think in that specific way I can per se. In that I don't know at this point. Well, partly because I don't actually have polling yet um, since post election, but without the polling, sorry, I should say, I can tell which would be stronger between. Republicans who now know, okay, it's not a play. The Democrats who are feeling pretty good because this went a lot better, and Republicans who are mad that, hey, we thought we were going to have this big red wave. It didn't happen. What the heck? However, I will say the one thing. Um, this is kind of like a qualitative-quantitative combo, right? It's not my model, but it's something I'm watching, and to me makes me think Warnock is modestly favored. Uh, if you look at the exit polls, um, and mind you that these exit polls were about two points to the right of the actual outcome, so this is a little bit more favorable to Walker than the reality was. Um, and you ask people, does Herschel Walker have good or poor judgment? 63% said he had poor ju- or judgment. 34% said he had a good judgment. The rest didn't answer, right? Among the people that said Herschel Walker has poor judgment, 24% of them actually voted for Herschel Walker. So those are reluctant, in my view, reluctant Walker voters. And they're ones who were already there. They were probably going there mainly for Kemp or for other reasons. Maybe, right? Maybe in the end they're going to be like, I want this Republican senator enough. I'm going to do it again. And I'm sure most of them will. But if there's a certain number of those who are like, I was just here because I had to vote for someone, but I can't, I don't like Walker enough to actually go out and vote when he's the only guy on the ballot, that would give things a little bit more in Warnock's favor. And I think there's a lot of them. He really disconcerted a lot of partisan Republicans. And so I just don't know. Um, Yeah, I mean, even if you have 5% lower turnout than you would otherwise have um, in this types of election, that could easily throw things in Warnock's favor. Right. And it could go the opposite way, too. Right. It could be, uh, you know, you could say uh, equally the same thing about Democrats. Maybe Democrats won't show up because they feel like they already won the Senate and it's really not going to make a difference in, in, you know, in who controls the Senate. Um, But, uh, you know, it seems to me if I had to fall back on on a reason for for that, I would say I would uh, rely on the old caveat that. Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Uh, you know, they seem to support whoever the candidate is, uh, re- re- regardless sometimes about how they feel about the issues, whereas Democrats always seem to care about the issues. So, uh, so no great predictions in Georgia. Do you think that, I mean, you, you're, you're making a prediction, but, but no, no extensive polling being done in Georgia at this point. 
But will that change over the next week? Do you think a lot of people will rush in there all of a sudden and start to play? I hope so. And, I and hope you, so. I'm a little nervous. I mean, you know, in 2020, there was less of polling than I expected, even though the whole country's political future kind of depended on it. Um, or maybe that's a little dramatic. The, the future of the Senate, anyway, depended on it. And I think only like seven or eight came out. Uh, and these days, you know, pollsters, there's less pollsters doing this. I think newspapers are less willing to pay for public polls because, you know, they don't want to look bad if it goes wrong. Maybe that changed on the polling was a little better, but I'm sure we'll at least see three or four. Um, probably one's going to come out this week. I'm surprised we haven't seen any, to be honest, but uh, maybe that's because a lot of these pollsters, you know, they set up their vacation for <laughs> their long work, uh, you know, and it's finally over. Uh, they're gone for a month, and uh, some yeah. of them might scramble it, you know, that we're getting closer to December at the end, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, if they're not starting to conduct their polls now, people don't tend to do polls over Thanksgiving, so we might be getting a few in the last few days of December, in the last few days of the election, if they aren't doing it this week. Well, that's true, and we all did. I was a political consultant for 25 years, and I was a, a direct mail consultant, so that's why I did a lot of campaign work. In my life, I've worked on a lot of presidential campaigns because my work was always done six weeks before the election or four weeks before the election. If you hadn't mailed a month before the election, because I did mostly fundraising mail, uh, there was no sense in mailing. So that's what we would do. We would like we would like plan the last month of of uh, the election to actually go out and knock on doors and and phone bank and, you know, do the kind of regular uh, shoe leather thing, as we call it, in in politics that, that politicians usually do. Well, we're running out of time here. So let me ask you, is there anything that I haven't asked you, something important that you want to say about looking at these polls and predicting the future that we haven't covered? Yeah, I would say that... This isn't a deep philosophical thing. I think it's just an interesting story that some people haven't been catching up on. There was an enormous ground-shaking shift for Donald Trump that, okay, stop me if you've heard these words before. I know you have many times, usually probably not said to the degree I just said it. Um, but this time, the data shows Donald Trump isn't actually losing a lot of support um, in a way that I haven't seen before after January 6th or any point since he's been president. Um, in a lot of primary polls for 2024, his support dropped by 25% in both state and national polls. Even the best polls for him show him um, a lot lower. He's now below 50%. Some show him as low as 35%. So I think that it's Repub when, there's always this theory that we never knew really knew was true, and I guess we don't know for sure yet, but that if Donald Trump was seen as less of a winner, that that would hurt his brand because that's a lot of his identity. It's kind of happening now because people blame the GOP having some of the conversations they didn't have in 2020 about maybe this isn't the best route forward for us as a party. Um, and, you know, they're blaming him for this 2020 and 2018 now. Some people are. So there's a real possibility the party is going to go in a different direction. In theory, the most likely is DeSantis, but you never know. Um, you know, Rudy Giuliani led every single poll, almost every single national poll in 2008 uh, for the GOP primary. And, he started falling apart two weeks before Iowa, and he only won one delegate. So you never know, right? The guy who doesn't run doesn't always hasn't run before doesn't always look as good once he's in the ring. Um, but I would say that's something to keep an eye on um, because that is a dramatic change in the future of our country if Trump ends up not being the nominee, despite his attempts to run again. 
Yeah, and you know, the thing to point out there is that the primary process is so much different than the general election process, you know, and that that's really the thing. Well, Lee, I, I, I agree. I don't think he can win at this point, and I think that'll drive people away from him. But uh, will that be enough to keep him out of the primary, given keep him from succeeding in the primary, given the core group that he's got uh, pulling for him? And I want to make my first prediction for 2024, and that is that Rudolph Giuliani will not be the nominee of the Republican Party. <coughs> but uh, I, I want to thank Yeah, I want to thank you. can go on record with that one. I want to thank you, Logan Phillips, editor-in-chief of Race to the White House, uh, a website which breaks down the strategy uh, driving campaigns and analyzes political battleground using sophisticated driven data driven analytics we will uh keep an eye on you and your prediction and i hope we can have you back on the show sometime and thank you so much for taking the time to be with me tonight hey it was an absolute pleasure happy to be back anytime yeah and we dedicate a song to uh our listeners and this and and, and our guests and this goes out to Logan Phillips and all those Democrats out there that are feeling it right now because uh, uh, we seem to be doing well. Uh, here's a classic one from the Beatles. We'll see you next week. Uh, thanks again, Logan. Uh, best of luck to you in the future. Let's have you back uh, after the elections and uh, uh, or after Georgia, maybe, and talk about what happened. Okay, thanks again. Thanks so much. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.